Start off tonight with my five most favorite words in the Bible, and it came to pass. When things aren't going so well, hang in there. It'll come to pass. Lord, speak to us tonight out of your word we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. When all the people had completely crossed over the Jordan, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Take for yourselves twelve men from the people, one man from every tribe, and command them, saying, Take for yourself twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the place where the priest's feet stood firm. You shall carry them over with you, and leave them in the lodging place where you lodge tonight. And Joshua called the twelve men whom he had appointed from the children of Israel, one man from every tribe. And Joshua said to them, Cross over before the ark of the Lord your God in the midst of the Jordan. Each one of you take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, that this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, saying, What do these stones mean to you? Then you will answer to them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it crossed over the Jordan, and the waters of the Jordan were cut off, and these stones shall be for, there's the word, a memorial in the children of Israel forever. God knows that we have a tendency to forget. And so he likes to use little tools uh, to help us to remember. And in the Old Testament, they would stack up rocks, and uh, they'd see a pile of rocks. Now, these, these guys weren't guys like today. I mean, these guys would go into the gym, and they would just put on all the weight and just bench it all, you know? I mean, these guys back in these days, I mean, look at these hills. These people would go up and down, and, and uh, they're carrying these, all the tent stuff with them. It's, it's amazing. We couldn't make it. We would die. These guys were just incredibly beefy. And even the kids, even the kids were, they would stood all day long while Joshua read the whole book of Deuteronomy to them. Little kids and everybody stood right there all day long, standing up, not sitting down in a comfortable seat in an air-conditioned building, right outside, standing up all day. You don't eat, you know, you don't sleep. You just stand there and listen all day. Kids, it's, it's amazing. Different times for sure. But God knows we have a tendency to forget, and we also have a tendency not to teach as we ought. Remember that parents are to teach their children about the whole counsel of God. But God would put little indicators to help the kids in their inquisitiveness to say, Hey, tell me that story, Dad. What's up? Why are these here? And then the dad would be forced to tell the story. Have you noticed how God built that into kids? Why, 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 you know? It's because dads in their fallen nature don't teach as they ought to teach. And so God's put it into kids to ask a million and one questions and uh, to sort of force you into teaching whether you want to or not. But again, it's an important job of the parents to teach the children the Word of God and to set up memorials. And I think pictures in your house on the walls are great. Memory verses up are awesome. And uh, all kinds of little figurines and stuff of various stories in the Bible are, are great, saying, what's this little figurine all about? You know, and, and to be able to tell the stories of the Bible. 
And there in verse 8, the children of Israel did so just as Joshua commanded, took up 12 stones from the midst of the Jordan, as the Lord had spoken to Joshua, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, and carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. Then Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priest who bore the Ark of the Covenant stood. And they are there to this day. And of course, that would be the day that Joshua was writing this. I don't know about today, uh, a few thousand years later. So the priest who bore the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord had commanded Joshua to speak to the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. And the people hastened or hurried and crossed over. You've got to remember you have two to three million people crossing over. To give you an idea... If you had 400 people wide going across and you started at daybreak, it would be nightfall before everybody got across. And that's 400 people across. That's a lot of people. And so they had to hurry because those priests are standing there all day. Uh, I don't think they were holding on to that ark because it was covered in uh, gold and uh, the whole lid was solid gold. And I remember, can't remember exactly what it was, but it's a few hundred pounds. I don't think they were holding on to it. They probably had it setting down in the midst of the Jordan. And so there were 12 stones in the Jordan River, and there were 12 stones in the Promised Land on the other side of the Jordan River. Again, the Jordan and crossing of the Jordan is not going over to heaven, as a lot of the old songs talk about cross over Jordan, you know, and I'll see my loved ones on the other side and so forth. When we cross over into heaven, there's not going to be battles to fight. There'll be no more wars anymore there, the Bible tells us. But crossing the Jordan is the born-again experience, becoming born again. And soon as we get to the other side, we begin to live the spiritual walk, which is a constant battle. You've got to go and fight the various enemies Enemies of the flesh trying to woo you into serving false God, trying to seduce you into their ways. But you have to fight against them and you have to conquer them. And so the pile of stones, I believe, that are in the Jordan are symbolic of the death of Christ. And none of us make it into the promised land except through the death of Christ. The stones on the other side represent the resurrection of Christ. And that's how we make it into the promised land, through the death and the resurrection of Christ. And there's only one way that we can enter in to a relationship with God, and that's through His Son, Jesus Christ. And again, in the Old Testament, we have continual typologies of Christ and what He would do one day on the cross. And so through the death and the resurrection of Christ. And again, the whole concept of baptism can often get mixed up because the, the, the whole concept of baptism really isn't the water. That's not the significance. The significance is that we died with Christ and we rose again with Christ in the newness of life. Just like Christ dies no more, but now lives at the right hand of the Father, so we also will die no more, but we now live in the newness of life. When we said, Jesus Christ, become the Lord of my life, right then we begin experiencing eternal life. We will never die. 
will be absent from this body and will be present with the Lord, but the sting of death is conquered. There will never be an experience outside of our physical body stopping. We will not finish. We will not feel the, the sting of death. We'll immediately, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, that there's this struggle goes on because we don't want to be unclothed. So it's a scary experience because God made these bodies to last for eternity. And so far as our bodies know, they're still supposed to live for eternity. And so whether you're 8 years old or 80 years old, your body is fighting to stay alive. And that's just the natural uh, bent of our bodies. That's the way it's supposed to be. And so we have that struggle, not wanting to be unclothed, but yet we know in our mind and in our heart and according to the Word of God that we will be further clothed. But there's still that struggle that goes on. But we don't die. And so we, through Christ, we die. We have to die to our old ways, our old self. We have to repent, turn around, forsake the world. We have to die to the world, to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life that are going to pass away. And so when we go through the waters of baptism, it's symbolic of dying with Christ. And again, the Bible says, just like we were in the loins of Adam when he sinned. So in Adam, all sinned. We were all there with Adam. If you look at it genetically, uh, the gene pool, there was some aspect of us in the loins of Adam in the garden. Because his children had his children, has their children, their children, their children, until it eventually came down to you. And so when Adam sinned, the Bible said, we all sinned in Adam. But through Christ, the Bible now tells us that we also were with him on the cross. And we were also with him in the tomb. And we were with him when he raised again from the dead. So we did, in a spiritual significance of at least our sins, dying and being buried, and we are raised again with Christ. And that is a spiritual reality that it's a mystery to us still. But when we get to heaven and we can see all the spiritual genetics as well as the physical genetics, it'll all make sense. But now it's a reality, and that's what it's about in baptism. And so again, as they went through the Jordan, they stacked the rocks representing the work that God had done by himself, supernaturally, that he parted the way that they could walk across on dry ground. And they got to the other side, they stacked it up, to remember the work that God had done, bringing them supernaturally into the promised land. And that's how every one of us got born again, by the supernatural work of God's Spirit coming into our lives. And so they had to hasten across. And in verse 11, Then it came to pass, when all the people had completely crossed over, the ark of the Lord the priest crossed over in the presence of the people, and the men of Reuben, the men of Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh crossed over, armed before the children of Israel, as Moses had spoken to them. About 40,000 prepared for war crossed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. Remember the deal with the Reubenites and the Gadites, and now half of the tribe of Manasseh have joined them as well. Remember that story. They came and they said, hey, we're cattlemen and this is wonderful green grass on this side of the Jordan. Don't make us go across. And Moses freaked out and said, this is what your dads did and this is why everybody died in the wilderness. 
You're going to cause these people to sin. And they said, no, no, no. We'll go over and fight until our brothers have their promised land, and then we'll come back. And he says, God's watching you. Beware lest your sin find you out. And you come short of this fulfillment. And remember the, the Reubenites and the Gadites were the first to be ca captured. They were the first to be corrupted. And when Jesus Christ came on the scene, remember he went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, to the area of the Gadarenes. And there the two guys were in the tombs, demon-possessed. They were breaking chains. They couldn't control them. Jesus cast the demons out of those guys. They went into pigs, which wasn't kosher. Again, they're not following the law. They're not obeying God. They go down and they drown there in the Sea of Galilee. The first mention of Devil Ham in the Bible. <clears throat> and... Uh, <laughs> and uh, horrible, I know. It, it'll get worse. And uh, and so we see these people. Now they've dragged half of the tribe of Manasseh. Now, remember the deal was that all the men of war would go. Now, if you figure it up, back in Numbers 26, remember when they were numbering the people, the Reubenites had 43,730 men for battle. The Gadites had 40,500 men for battle. And then if you take half of the tribe of Manasseh, Manasseh had 52,700, half of that would be 26,350. Add those up, it was at least, minimally, 110,580 men that should have went. Possibly even 136,930. So, minimally, 100,000 men should have went. But how many end up going over? 40,000. And not only had Reuben and Gad not crossed over to inherit what God had promised, but now they're bringing the Manassehites also into their number of staying on that side of the Jordan, and they only had a small portion of the men that actually went over to fight. And so already we begin to see the weak link in the, the chain. We already begin to see the compromise of the people and they just barely crossed the Jordan. Well, there in verse 14, it says, On that day the Lord magnified Joshua in the sight of all of Israel. They feared him as they had feared Moses all the days of his life. So the people had an awe, had a respect for their leader, and again, it's important that we respect those positions of leadership. And of course, the person himself, he has to earn that respect and that trust. And if he breaks that respect and he breaks that trust, it's a long time earning it back, or maybe never, uh, as, in, as in our case right now in our country. But Joshua had earned that respect now. They feared him. They respected him as they had respected Moses. Remember how God delivered them out of Egypt? He opened up the Red Sea, and they crossed on dry ground. Now God has done the same thing with Joshua. Remember the Lord said, As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And so now, the way God had used Moses and opened up the Red Sea, God now had used Joshua and opened up the Jordan. Remember this is high tide. And, and there, the place where they had crossed at the Jordan was probably a mile wide. So it wasn't some small little stream that they could have jumped across anyway. That wasn't the case. This is flood season, and the enemy no doubt was taken way off guard by the fact that they got across wondering how in the world that could have happened. Now the Lord spoke to Joshua saying in verse 16, Command the priests who bear the ark of the testimony to come up 
from the Jordan. Joshua therefore commanded the priest, saying, Come up from the Jordan. And it came to pass when the priest who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord had come from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priest's feet touched the dry land, that the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and followed over all its banks as, it, as before. Now the people came up from the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they camped in Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up in Gilgal. Now Gilgal, as we go through the Old Testament, is a very significant place where God continues to bring revival to the people at this, this spot. Then he spoke to the children of Israel, saying, When your children ask their fathers in the time to come, saying, What are these stones that you will... You shall let your children know, saying, Israel, cross over this Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God tried, dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you have crossed over as the Lord your God did the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed over. That all the peoples of the earth may know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. And so again, this is a historical fact. And... Uh, you can believe it as if it ha happened today. You can believe it as an absolute fact that this indeed happened. And you can just go, hopefully this next year, in 99 we're going to be going over to Israel, and some of you can go over, and we'll take you to this very spot. And uh, you can just sit there and look across that Jordan River, and uh, you can even swim around and try to find those stones if you want. I, it's fine with me. Uh, don't think you'll have too much luck, but and uh, just sort of be in awe that God had done such a mighty, mighty work. Now in chapter 5, so it was when all the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we had crossed over, that their heart melted. And there is no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. Now remember this was a promise that God had given to Moses. That the children of Israel would always have, the, the people would have the dread before they ever got there. That the people would have the dread and the fear of the children of Israel upon them before they ever got there. And here it's already happening. Now at that time the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives for yourself and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. So Joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel at the hill of the foreskins. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt, who were males, all the men of war, had dry, died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. For all the people who came out had been circumcised, but all the people who were born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. Now, listen to this, folks. God had done such a miraculous work, and his word was so very, very clear. He had spoken through Abraham. When your child is eight days old, you circumcise them. Now, we don't happen to know today in modern science, that's the day that the blood clotting in the body is at the highest, is on the eighth day of your life, which is quite interesting. But none of these children had ever been circumcised, which was the covenant God had made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then re-set uh, it with Moses. But look at these people's hearts. They could easily see God's word 
and just not do it. We need to be ever so careful to think that God doesn't care about small obedience. He does. We can't we should not say, "Oh well, meditate in God's word day every night." Well, you know, you really don't have to do it every day and every night. We need to be careful. The Bible says pray about everything. Well, you know, we don't pray about it. It's no big deal. It is a big deal. You're disobeying God. Rejoice in the Lord always and in everything give thanks. Well, I know I murmured and complained, but that's just the way I am. You better change because you're in sin. We need to come back and to say, no, God has given us clear commands out of his word. And whether they seem significant to you or not, they're significant to him or he wouldn't have said it. And we need to stop in our tracks and say, here we are wanting to head over into the promised land. Is there little areas of obedience in our life that we're just ignoring God over? We need to step back and say, I'm going to be the wise man who hears God's word and does it, no matter how small it may seem to you. And so it blows my mind that these people had experienced so many radical things by God. They had been through the Red Sea. They had a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. They ate manna that came out of heaven on the ground. They drank water that came out of a rock. God had brought quail to them, stacked on top in the wilderness. They had saw miracle after miracle. But when God says, circumcise your kids, he only had to say it once. He didn't need to remind them every year for 40 years. He said it once. They knew they were to do it. Forty years later, no one had done it. Again, we're going to discover that God also told them that every seventh year they were to tithe their land. That every seventh year the land was to go fallow. They were not to plow it. They were not to plant it. They were not to harvest from it. And God spoke it. And for 490 years, the people of Israel never obeyed it once. Not one year did they ever let their land go fallow. And God said, the tithe is mine, it's not yours, and because you wouldn't give it when I asked you to give it, now I'm going to take it from you. For 70 years you're going to be sent captive out of the land, and I'm going to get my 70 year, for every seven years, seven divided into 490 comes out to be 70 years. So you're going to be captive for 70 years, taken out of the land. And uh, they were. They were gone for 70 years. And God reclaimed his tithe. They never did obey it. Although God didn't harp on them year after year after year after year, it was clear in the word. We're going to see that with David when the ark was to be moved. David gets the ark and puts it on a brand new cart with brand new oxen that never pulled anything. And remember, it starts, one of the ox stumble and Uzzah, one of the priests reaches up and grabs a hold of the ark so it doesn't topple over and God strikes him dead. And David's all mad at the Lord. And there it's parked in Obadidim's garage. And he's blessed and blessed and blessed for three months. He's just overwhelmingly blessed. And they said, it's not right that he's so blessed. Get it to Israel so all our country is blessed. And David went and did it according to the scriptures. He had the priests carry it by the pole. And they carried it into Jerusalem. We can so easily say, oh well, you know, put it on the cart. It doesn't really matter. Let's just get it here. God, you may get a little ways, but God can't honor it. And if one of the oxen stumble, somebody's going to eat it. We need to step back and say, what does the scripture say? It may seem slower, it may seem insignificant, 
But if God said it, it has a definite purpose and a reason. And so here now they cross over to the other side of Jordan. They went just a little ways into Gilgal, and they're stopped. And God said, I can't go any farther until you do what I've already told you to do. And there they circumcised all these people with flint knives. Not a good strategic plan right before you go to battle. Uh, especially we're going to do a lot of walking as they end up doing. But uh, hopefully the pain would help them to remember to do it when they're young and uh, not put their kids through that later on. Well, then the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness till all the people who were the men of war, verse 6, had came out of Egypt were consumed because they did not obey the voice of the Lord to whom the Lord swore that he would not show them the land which the Lord had sworn to the fathers that he would give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. And Joshua circumcised their sons whom he raised up in their place for they were uncircumcised because they had not circumcised on the way. And in verse 8, so it was when they had finished circumcising all the people that they stayed in their places in the camp till they had healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, This day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore the name of the place is called Gilgal to this day, which means the rolling away. And again, I think it's interesting that the stone was rolled away and uh, for the people to see that Christ had risen from the dead. Romans chapter 2. What is New Testament circumcision? It's the Holy Spirit coming into our lives and it's the circumcision of our heart, of that old self-centered, self-confident, wicked way of ours coming out and we live a life dependent upon Christ. And when Jesus Christ raised from the dead, the Holy Spirit was sent into the world, the Bible tells us, in John chapter 16, to convict men of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And the Holy Spirit's been active in the world ever since. And of course, he came in to the believers to actually live in their lives. And so, we too, if we are, don't have the Holy Spirit, it says in Romans 8 9, then we are not his. And so now you can't go forward except in the power of the Holy Spirit, in that covenant relationship with Christ. What is that covenant relationship with Christ? Through his death and resurrection, through his blood that he shed, we now walk in the newness of life through the power of his blood, through the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. And so the resurrection power is now available to us through the Holy Spirit. And so the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. And they ate the produce of the land on the day after the Passover, unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day. Now the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land, and the children of Israel no longer had manna, for they ate the food of the land of the Canaan that year." So not only did, were they circumcised, they also, it happened to fall on the Passover Eve, and there they kept the Passover in the Promised Land. Every Jew around the world, when they take of Passover, they always end the Passover by saying, next year, Jerusalem. And, uh, or next year in the Promised Land. And so here, they actually have their first time of Passover, which happens to be three days after they're in the Promised Land, they're able to take of that Passover. And again, remember the Passover is symbolic of, of um, 
Remember the angel of death that went over in Egypt and killed everybody who didn't have the blood on their doorpost of the house. In the same way, how are we going to continue to make it? By the blood of Jesus Christ. Little children, I write these things to you that you don't sin. But if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is presently the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. It says in 1 John chapter 2. And so we now can move forward knowing that we're going to stumble and fall, but by the grace and the forgiveness of God, we get up and we keep walking. It's also interesting to see again how God does work in miracles and works in supernatural ways. He doesn't do miracles for the heck of it. He does it because there's no other human or earthly way of accomplishing it. God never uses miracles for us to escape the natural workings of this world. We often would like to say, God, just do a miracle. But God likes to work through the processes of this life. You hear people say from time to time, God, just show me who I'm going to marry, you know, just show me them. And then you hear guys or girls from time to time, God showed me who I'm going to marry, and then they marry somebody else, or going, I guess it wasn't the Lord. And I don't think God works that way. I don't think God is going to write their name in a cloud, and you're going to know it's them. I think it's just as you walk, and you are in the Spirit, and you're walking in the Spirit, you're set, you're focused on serving the Lord, that God brings people into your path, you learn in those relationships, you grow in those relationships. And some of those people are single people of the opposite sex, and you get to know them, and some of them are in your life for a few weeks, some of them are in your life for a few months, and there will be that one person that comes that God says will be in your life for the rest of your life. But it's just a natural process of time, trial, error, mistakes. And as you walk and continue to walk, God uh, reveals his grace, but he also reveals that person. In the same way, I think, uh, as we work uh, in every area of our life, that God will use the natural processes of this life. Sometimes people are out of work, and they just say, well, I'm just staying at home praying for my phone to ring, and somebody says, you need a job. Um, it could work that way. If that God chose, I mean, God can do anything. We could walk on water, but we all know Christians that have drowned. I mean, it doesn't mean that God's going to cause them to walk on water just because he can. And uh, so again, the, the point of the matter is, is that God has his perfect way of doing things. And uh, the reality is, is that he likes to work through the processes of life. So as you're looking in the yellow, or in the newspaper and as you're out knocking on doors trying to find a job, God will use that natural process to also bring the job to you. And so here we see that now they're in the promised land. They're not out in a desert. Now there's food for them to eat. And so God stops a supernatural manna. Now in verse 13, it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho, that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or our adversaries? So he said, No, but a commander of the army of the Lord I have now come. 
And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandals off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Now these verses, verse 13 to 15, I spoke this morning uh, in a topical message called um, God's Formula for Victory. And if you weren't here, I encourage you to get that tape. But what we do learn here is that Joshua is a self-confident man. And there he is looking at Jericho. I believe very specifically he's plotting, he's planning, he's getting strategy. And there he sees this guy with a sword drawn and he's basically saying, who do you think you are? I'm the commander here and I didn't give any command to draw your sword and let's go. Get in line. Who do you think you are? But he was distracted by God. He was irritated by God. And it wasn't until he asked this, I believe, a rather sarcastic question, and the Lord doesn't answer it, of course, that he realizes, God, oh, I forgot about him. God is the one who's going to bring this battle. And the Lord says, I'm the commander of the Lord's army. In other words, it's not you, Joshua. And of course, what a burden that must have taken off of Joshua. I don't have to make this victory happen. I don't have to make sure this battle is won. I don't have the burden of trying to organize these people and make a strategy and make a plan and make it all work out. I can just look to God and let him plan the way, let him direct. Now we're going to see in the rest of the book of Joshua, failure after failure after failure. Every single time, it's because Joshua doesn't wait to hear from God. He jumps ahead with his own plan, with his own strategy, and moves ahead without the Lord's direction. And every single time, it ends up in failure, not in victory. And so God, I think, in his grace right now, is trying to get Joshua's attention to say, wake up. I'm the commander. I'll make the plans, and you be a part of the plans. Don't make the plans and then ask me to bless them as we so often do. God, bless my plans and make it work. And God is just simply saying, listen to my voice, hear my plans, and I'll be gracious to you and let you be a part of my plans. And this is what the Lord's saying. And of course, his sword is drawn. He's ready for action. He's going to either be against Joshua or for Joshua. It's up to him. Is he willing to listen to God and obey him and follow his instruction? Or is he going to say, that's nonsense, God. I've got warriors here. We don't need to walk around a city. We can go attack it and we can take it. We need to be careful to trust in the Lord with all our heart. To not lean on our own understanding. But in all our ways acknowledge him and let him direct our paths. Trust in him. Don't lean on your own understanding. Acknowledge him. And Joshua... Of course, he fell to his face and he worshipped because he knew it was the Lord. And that heart of worship brought him into submission. Our number one job as believers is to minister unto God. And then as we minister unto him, he gives us direction, he gives us the power, and he gives us the grace to minister to others. And then then the Lord speaks. Or then he says, what now? Now his heart submitted. Whatever you say, that's what I want to do. And then the Lord Uh, gives the command. The first command the Lord gives is for his own personal life. 
take off those sandals off your foot, because God doesn't want anything separating between us and him. He wants it to be a holy relationship where there's nothing dividing, nothing in between us and the Lord, no matter how small it may be. Even if it's just a little thin piece of leather, God doesn't want us between you and him. Paul and Timothy says that we need to be a vessel of gold and silver, not of clay and earthenware, but a vessel sanctified, set apart for the master's use, a vessel of honor, not for dishonor. And so he's telling him first, get this area right in your life. Don't be separate from me in any way, shape, or form. And Joshua did so. And then God gives him the command now for the outward victory. And Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. They were probably shocked that the children of Israel were there because they knew the floodwaters were there, thought it, they would have to wait several months until the water went down. But again, the waters were separated. They, the battle came much quicker than they had expected. Now the Lord said to Joshua, See, explanation point, now look, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king and the mighty men of valor. Remember earlier, Joshua was there by Jericho looking. But he was looking through natural eyes. He was trying to figure out in the natural realm how this was going to happen. But now God says, now that you're submitted unto me, now that you've got things right and seeing that I'm the commander of the army, you're worshiping, you're submitted, we've got that issue in your life dealt where you're no longer separated from me, that you understand that you're on holy ground, separated ground. The word holy and the word sanctified is one and the same, to be set apart. And you realize this is my battle that you're a part of my team, I'm not a part of your team. And he says, now look at it again. And now he looks back at Jericho, and what does he see? A sure victory. God says, it's an absolute fact, victory is yours. It's king and all those great giants, those mighty men of valor, are all going to be taken. And so, before the battle is ever fought, there's an absolute confidence that the battle is won. I love the fact that the Bible says we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. There's nothing that uh, we are not going to have victory in. He's going to give us the victory. The Bible says it over and over again, that we have a triumphal entry through Christ. And in verse 3, You shall march around the city, all you men of war. You shall go all around the city once, then you shall do six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Then the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. Then it shall come to pass, when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout, then the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up every man straight before him. You know, I was thinking of that song, you know, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. Jer you know, I, those songs are so blasphemous. Joshua fit, in other words, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Joshua didn't fight the battle of Jericho. And then he said, you can talk about the men of Gideon. Anybody talk about the men of Gideon? It was insignificant. There was only 300 of them. You can talk about the men of Saul. Anybody ever talk about the men of Saul? I mean, I think the devil wrote that song. There's not one accurate verse in that entire song. 
But the whole point is that Joshua didn't fit the battle of Jericho. He didn't fight it. The Lord had fought it for him. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant. Let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. Now the ram's horn, are also in the Hebrew called the shofar, is what the priest had, and they would use them at different feasts, and they would call the people unto worship, and it looks like this. <laughs> now, any of you guys want to take a crack at being a priest tonight? We'll have two people come up. Okay, come on up. Hurry, come on up. Come on up, John. We'll, we'll let you guys give it a try. Priest number one, John Peregrine. Good try, good try. Kaylin, priest Kaylin. <laughs> it's, it's a little hard. Good try. If anybody else wants to try afterwards, you can come up. Now, I happen to play a trumpet all through junior high and high school, so I don't want to make these guys look bad. But it actually has a really nice sound. I, I set it up front, I set it up front. Here we go. All right. When you guys get a little hair on your chest, come try to find it. <laughs> you want to hear something really bad? is my little son Tracy, and he's, he's been about three years old, can blow it as good as I can. So I should have brought him up here tonight and had him do it. He's good. And so they had these horns, and they're blowing them before the ark. And so it was in verse 8, when Joshua had spoken to the people that the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord advanced and blew the trumpets and the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord followed them. I bought this one, by the way, in Israel. And uh, some of you guys get to go to Israel. You can buy them there. It's, they're actually pretty uh, inexpensive. I can't remember how much I paid for it, maybe $10 or something. But uh, anyway, they're sure a nice showpiece to have around and also to humiliate people. It's really great. <laughs> it's really great. So, you know, People come over to the house, you can't blow this? It's easy. Look at my son. He can do that. The armed men, in verse 9, went before the priest, they blew the trumpets, and the rear guard came after the ark, while the priest continued blowing the trumpets. Now Joshua had commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout or make any noise with your voice, nor shall any word proceed out of your mouth, until the day I say to you, Shout, then you shall shout. And that's again back in... Um, verse 3, where it says, only the men of war shall go, because, uh, I mean, the Lord help the women. I mean, not a word to proceed out of their mouth for six days, uh, that, I don't think that's a possibility. Anyway, we're going to move on. So, <laughs> so he had the ark of the Lord circle the city, 
going around it once. Then they came into the camp and lodged in the camp. And Joshua rose early in the morning, which is a continual sentence all the way through the book of Joshua. We see it in the same in the life of Jesus and King David rose early in the morning. The priest took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests bearing seven trumpets of the ram's horn before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew the trumpets and the armed men went before them. But the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord while the priests continued blowing the trumpets. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. So they did six days. But it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose very early about the dawning of the day and marched around the city seven times in the same manner. 600,000 men approximately, man, walking around that city, staying a distance away so they don't get hit by an arrow. That must have been some pretty fast marching. And the seventh time it was so, when the priest blew the trumpets, that Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction, it and all who are in it. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all who are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. Now they went around a total of 13 times. And as I would mentioned this morning, the world tells you 13 is an unlucky number. Did you know most hotels won't have floor number 13? They skip it because it's an unlucky number. Why is it an unlucky number? You know it doesn't say it in the Bible, so the devil had to make it up. Well, here's why it's an unlucky number. It's unlucky for the devil. <laughs> those in Jericho, it wasn't a good number. For those outside of Jericho or at the Lord, it's a wonderful number. And this is our 13th year today. The first uh, Sunday in September is when we started the church 13 years ago. And I believe this is just uh, something the Lord's speaking to us. You know, as we go through the Word... Where we're at in the Word seems to be where we're at. You know, it's just God and His timing. And I really believe that this is going to be a significant year for the walls to come tumbling down through San Diego as we've been wanting to be the witness, wanting to be the light, wanting to be the salt, wanting to see our neighbors and our family and our co-workers get saved. This is the year. And oh, that God would put into every one of our hearts to pray and to seek Him. I can't encourage it enough to come a half an hour early for prayer time at 5.30 and just to cry out to God. Tonight in the afterglow time, and it's another time just to worship, to minister unto God. And as we're ministering unto Him, to let Him speak to us and to get those words in season about how God desires to use us and to cry out to God for revival, to cry out to God that we could be 100%. You know, it says when the seed falls in the good ground, some bears 30-fold some 60, and some a hundredfold. Every seed that falls in produces. Man, I want that hundredfold lifestyle where every word that I speak, as it were, is the utterance of Christ, that every deed I do produces and prospers and bears fruit unto God. And God can give us that kind of lifestyle if we'll diligently seek Him with our whole heart, if we'll get serious with the Lord, who gets serious with us. And when we pray according to his will, we have the very thing we ask of him, and it's to be more used by him. I believe if we're willing to pay the price of seeking him with our whole heart, I believe that he'll let us be uh, found, that he'll let us find him completely and be used as much as we want. So this is the 13th year. I pray it's a victorious year where we shout, and uh, this city comes tumbling down, this demonic realm comes crumbling down. And there in verse 18, 
By all means, keep yourself from the accursed thing, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. Right after victory often comes horrible defeat. Why? Because you let down the wall. You, you <laughs> let down the wall. Um, you let down the curtain of protection. And there the devil comes in the back door and catches you off guard. That tension that's in our life when we're going through the heat of the battle, when the... Oh, my son Tracy is here. You want to come and blow this shofar, Tracy? No. <laughs> no. When he's in here, it means that he was bad down there. So... <laughs> so... He's, he's soaring. <laughs> Dave, I'm going to get you one of these days. Okay. And so we got to be careful not to grab those accursed things and, uh, and not to allow um, the Lord not to take first place. And so during the heat of the battle, when the heat's turned up, we're seeking the Lord with intensity. When the heat comes down, let's continue to seek the Lord with intensity. And then the silver and the gold and the vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. From Genesis to Revelation, the first is the Lord's. They're in the promised land. The first battle that would be fought the first spoil that would be taken, the first is always the Lord's. And so he says, this first city, it's mine. Don't touch any of the gold, any of the silver. Everything is mine. God always requires the first. Why? To take from us? No. That he might be able to give more unto us. As we give, it'll be given back, pressed down, shaken together, running over into our bosom. So he's teaching the principles. These things were spoken aforetime for us now. You give first to the Lord, and uh, that's the best thing you could ever do. And so the people shouted when the priest blew the trumpets, and it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. Then the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. Now we also go to Jericho. And you know what we discover? The wall's flat. And uh, a matter of fact, the original tower, and I believe it's probably one of the towers where Rahab was living. There is one of the original towers that still stands from this time of Jericho. Remember, one portion of the wall didn't fall, and it's interesting that the tower is there. Of course, uh, the city of Jericho has been built upon, and, uh, and so you have to look down at the top of the tower that once was high. But uh, nevertheless, nevertheless, that tower is still there, and I believe it's uh, a sign and a, and a symbol of God's saving Rahab the harlot. And they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both men and women, young and old, oxen and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. And Joshua had said to the two men who had spied out the country, go into the harlot's house from there, bring out the woman and fall and all that she has as you had swore to her. And the young men who had uh, been spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers and all that she had. So they brought out all the relatives and left them outside the camp of Israel. But they burned the city and all that was in it with fire, only the silver and the gold and the vessels, the bronze and iron that put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. And Joshua spared Rahab the harlot, her father's household, and all that she had. So she dwells 
uh, in Israel to this day because she had hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Now remember she married Salmon. I believe that he possibly was one of the spies. Salmon had Boaz who married Ruth, as we get to the book of Ruth, and Ruth was in the lineage of our Lord Jesus Christ according to the flesh. She was the great, great, great grandmother of King David and so forth. And she's mentioned in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Again, showing the grace of God. Then Joshua charged them at that time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord who raises up to build this city, Jericho. He shall lay its foundation with his firstborn, and with his youngest he shall set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout all the country. Now here's an interesting little prophecy. This is a great spot. They have a, they have a well there um, that still pumps an incredible amount of water. There's a lot of uh, farmland all around Jericho. Matter of fact, when you go to Jericho, they have these fruit stands of all types of fruits. And I have not ever tasted better fruit in my entire life. You can buy all kinds of exotic fruits and incredibly cheap prices. And it's right there at this old city of Jericho where you can buy it. And you, as you look out from the tell of, of Jericho, you look out, you just see beautiful farmland. And there in the distance, you see the Jordan River. It's just, it's gorgeous. It's uh, one of the prettiest sites, I think, in Israel. But notice here, he says, that if anybody ever tries to rebuild this, it's going to take the life of two of the sons. Turn over, if you would, to 1 Kings chapter 16. 1 Kings chapter 16. And notice there in verse 34. In his days, Hill of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation with Abram, his firstborn, and his youngest son, Segub. He set up its gates according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. This is 500 years later, folks. What did Jesus say? Not one jot or tittle will pass away until all is fulfilled. 500 years later, approximately, this man decides to rebuild the city of Jericho, and it costs the life of his son. Now, this city ended up getting destroyed, and a new city of Jericho ended up getting built right before the time of Christ, and there ended up being two cities of Jericho. There's the old side of Jericho and the new side of Jericho. And uh, today when we go to Jericho, we go to two of them. Now if you read in the Gospel accounts, Jesus comes out of the city of Jericho and heals a blind man, and then immediately when he's going into Jericho, he heals a blind man. And for years it stumped people saying, how could that be? And then we discovered there's actually two Jerichos. And Jesus on his way would have went through the old Jericho, healed a blind man as he was exiting the city, went just a little ways, about a half a mile farther, and then he went, as he was going into the new city of Jericho, before he heads up the Roman road up to Jerusalem, um, he uh, bumped into the other blind man and healed him. And so, a little bit of interesting trivia. Well, chapters 7 and 8 go together, and uh, really want to take some time with that. And so I think we'll end here tonight, uh, much to... My dismay wanted to get a little farther, but God's not in a hurry. The Lord's ways and the Lord's timing. Lord, we thank you for this night, and we thank you for your word and all that you've spoken unto us. Truly, your ways are awesome.
They're marvelous in our sight even today. The great work that you have done. And Lord, we know you have your timing and your ways and teach our hearts to wait upon you. As David said, wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. Strengthen your heart. But I say, wait on the Lord. That our hearts would be steadfast to seek your face and to learn to wait upon you. Lord, our hearts cry. It's just to learn to receive from you. We're just going to set a minute and sing a couple songs of worship, and then we'll end the service here tonight.